0: Hi, I'm Anna McEwen and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. So, (laughs) I know I always chuckle when I'm I'm realizing that, right? As you listen, uh, those of you who listen every week. Like I tend to laugh every time we start these things because I it's it's a I just feel good every time every time I get to tell more of the story, and I think of things that I didn't say uh, last week <clears throat> in the story. So let me just cover this. Now we get some of this deal, some of these details from Second uh, Samuel chapter one. Yeah, we we made it out of First Samuel. We made it out of First Samuel, the death of Saul. Is the end of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel starts with David fighting out. <clears throat> so um we're gonna get some details regarding the death of Saul. And I'll uh, I'll reference those back to back to last week because um we we asked some questions as to what exactly was going on, and I did that on purpose, knowing that this week we were gonna get some details. So here we go. So after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the uh, Amalekites, and he stayed in Ziglag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So here's David. Remember, he arrived at Ziglag from being rejected by the Philistines. He arrives there. Uh, The place is devastated. Now, it took him three days to get from where the battle was to Ziglag. Then it took him a day to go after the Amalekites. And then it says he fought them for the day. He chased them around for a day and killed them all. And then they took all the plunder and walked home. So it's been probably a week since... um, since David was rejected by the Philistines and sent home. so I just want you to know like I'm not saying that it was a week- long battle, but it was a it was a it was several days long. this battle's been going on so so when Saul dies the the depth and length of the battle, you know had something to do with all that depression that he was he was swallowed in so this man shows up at David at Ziglag. Now, I don't know if David had a office. I doubt he had a throne room. He might've had like a council room, like a, yeah, like, like a, a general building. But it says they came to David and he fell on the ground and paid him honor. So maybe, maybe there was a, you know, that area next to the gate where the elders would sit, David would be there. The idea is that, that, there was, there was governing going on in the, in the city of Ziglag. There was, there was rebuilding going on. There was observation going on. People were putting their lives back together. They were, they were, uh, yeah. Tearing out the, the burned timbers and they were putting, you know, finding new ones and bringing them in. Like there was a lot of activity in the city, a lot. And David asked some, uh, uh clarifying confirming questions now this is a, this is an amalekite so keep that in mind where have you come from uh, i have escaped from the israelite camp what happened tell me men f- the men fled from the battle many of them fell and died and saul and his son jonathan are dead I'm not sure why the other brothers weren't mentioned, but we know that they, that Jonathan was not the only son. of Saul. So the man he said the men fled from the battle. So he when, when when he when he's telling these things again. Remember these are bullet points. So David's getting a a pretty detailed explanation as to how the battle went, and I think David is is listening intently because he's also seeing within the story. Of the battle he's seeing places where saul made error not not like saul's an idiot but but nuances that he would have done differently ways that he would have led the men differently and i i think um i i, I do not mean to belittle warfare down to us down to sporting uh, events but i'm i'm not a, a veteran i i've not been in warfare but I pictured this story of uh, that the amalekite is is speaking to David. David's asking clarifying questions because he wants to know the details of the of the battle. and as he's listening, it's like listening to somebody describe, you know, the way that they lost a game. And the, uh, you know, obviously, this game uh, has life and death implications, but they're describing how they lost this game. And there's nuances to the strategy that as you listen, you think, oh, I wouldn't have done that. No, I would have, you know, I would have done something differently. Now, I don't think David's necessarily uh, interrupting him. But internally, I think David is reliving this battle and realizing that that there was a lot of little things that could have done, gone differently. And I think David's caught up in the moment. He's He was in so many battles he's He's feeling the the rush of the attacks. He's feeling the panic of the men as they want to run. He's understanding that there are there are, you know advancements of the enemy that that scatter the men, and the men are losing heart. he He senses all of that. The men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his Jonathan are Saul and his son Jonathan are dead wow i mean to get to that point like that's the end of the point so we've gone through through whatever several days of battle several nights of planning not that the Amalekite knew what was being planned but he's he was a, an observer he was somebody who was in the thick of it he knew what was going on so jonathan said uh, david says now, I just want to know, like, how do you know for sure Saul and his son are are dead? Well, he says, I happen to be on Mount Gil- Gilbia which I'm sure David knew exactly where it was. And there was Saul leaning on a spear. So that's how that's how Saul committed suicide. He got wounded, remember, I've, I'm guessing, in his leg, so he couldn't run anymore. He found a spot. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer wouldn't do it. So, so Saul figures out a way to get himself up probably by leaning you know using this the spear as a as a cane he gets himself up he puts the spear in a in a specific angle (laughs) and and he leans on it he just runs himself through but he says i uh so they were saw leaning on a spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot, hot pursuit. So, if you remembered, Saul had gotten hit by the arrow. The archers left. He has this conversation. There's that whole death scene going on, and and the army of the Philistines continues to roll. They weren't, you know, they weren't letting up. They were gonna. Saul knew he was going to be found. And when he turned around and he saw me, he was like. He calls out to me, he's like, Come here, boy, son, man, come here. And I said, What wait what can I do? He said, Who are you? I'm an Amalekite. Then he said, Stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. <laughs> this is this is a man who literally tried to commit suicide, couldn't do it. Well, at least not right away. Like, he's still in pain. He's still bleeding. He's still alive. He still doesn't want to be captured. So this is the third strike against Saul. Like, this sounds so painful to me. This sounds so, so, like, dramatic and drawn out. This is not the way Saul wanted to go down. This is not the way anybody would want to go down. I, I just, it's just... Oh my gosh, to hear these details. I think of the dust and the heat and the sweat and the the pounding of the heart as it as it's you know losing blood but not not dead yet and, and the shortness of breath and Saul trying to to call out to this man and he comes over and he goes, Will you kill me? He said, So I stood beside him and I killed him. I don't know I don't know if that that means uh he stabbed him again? Probably does. And after that, after he, was, he had fallen, he could not survive. In other words, I, I, I knew he was dead. There was, there was no coming back from this. He'd be dead, you know, in essence, before anybody anybody caught him, anybody found him. So I took the crown that he had on his head and the band on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Wow. Why would he say it like that? Well, he, he's, he's, he's showing allegiance <clears throat> to the one that he knows should be the next king because everyone knows that David was anointed the next king by Samuel. And, and I have no doubt that he's expecting a reward for this. He's expecting to be awarded something because he took the crown and the band like these are these are the symbols of of David's anointing these are these are the things that that David has been pursuing the idea of for years everyone knows that this is this is this is what David's been after I know he hasn't been pursuing it as in um, manipulating and trying to cause civil war and, and all that sort of thing but all of his fleeing, all of his running, all of his, all of his um, uh, interactions through all the towns and villages of Judah and the wilderness and the woods and the caves, all of it's been about the crown, and the crown is there in front of him, It's being handed to him. Like if anything, this, this would be really difficult to look at and say, it's not my time, you know, this is not God. But David looks at it and in, and instead of seeing his opportunity he sees what could have been in the life of Saul. He sees what what Saul could have been. He looks at that crown and he sees what it rep- he sees the man it represented. He sees the the anointing of God that Saul carried and that the opportunities that Saul had if he had walked out all that God had had laid out before him. If 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 Saul had stepped into the wisdom of God and and built rebuilt his relationship with Samuel, if he had if he had worshiped God, if all those things, man, he just I, I just picture this moment. I don't I don't see it as a as like this this quick uh interaction. This is drawn out and I think he, he, you know, the Amalekite hands David the crown, and and I think David just, he just looks at it. I don't know if it's in his lap. I don't know if he's he's holding it out in front of him. I I just I just think he's staring at it, and he just thinks he's just thinking all kinds of. All kinds of things. He's all the memories of Saul. all the memories, all the time. I think he thought of all the good times. He thought of all the laughter around the banquet table. He thought of all the, the walks that they took in the field outside the city in the morning. He thinks of, of the, the times that we come back from victory and hand, hand Saul, or give Saul the report, you know, and Saul would thank him for his service to the country. And, It's it's yeah. Saul was man. Saul was was after him. Saul wanted to kill him. Saul caused a lot of pain in his life. But when it came to his death, there was a death of there was a depth, I should say, of of memory, a depth of honor that David had for Saul. So I don't think he looked at this this crown and was happy about it. He was truly sad and it says that David and all the men with him took took hold of their clothes and tore them this was this is culturally what they would do they would grab basically along their neckline and they would tear tear their clothes as a as a symbol so that everyone would know that they were in mourning and they mourned and they wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord for the nation of Israel because they had fallen on the sword now now remember these these men that tore their their clothes and mourned all day were the same men that wanted J- David to kill Saul years earlier I think that this speaks to um this speaks to the way that that David influenced his men I think it speaks to the way that that um To the beauty and essence of the kingdom of God that David David is connected with, so so we probably before the mourning, the I know it sounds like morning, but before the sadness of the men, David says to the man, uh, "Where are you from?" He says, "I'm a I'm a son of a foreigner and a Amalekite, and and I'm just curious. Like now, remember the Amalekites were the ones that David had pursued." That had, that had raided Ziglag and had, you know, that was a thousand plus men that had raided a number of, of cities up and down the coast because they knew that the war was going on. So the Amalekites were everywhere uh, taking advantage of things and looking out for themselves. So David's probably not um, thinking too highly of this man, unfortunately. He's not seeing this man the way God sees him. He uh, says, uh, "Why weren't you afraid to to lift your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed?" Now that's that's again that's a bullet point for him to say what what was it about you? Like what is it about you that would that you would take out your sword and kill the king? Now remember, Saul created a culture of fear. Saul Saul was a dictator. He was a tyrant. He was not fun to be around. But David's response here. David's response is not. It, it, I don't think this is God directed. As connected as David is right now to heaven, I don't think it's God directed. I think this is David's response. David's response is to ask this man, you know, why didn't you, why did you kill the king? Now this man just told him, I didn't. I mean, he didn't really kill the king. He, I mean, the king killed himself. The king was injured and probably would have died anyways. Then the king attempted to kill himself. Now the king is barely alive, but he wants to die before the before the Philistines arrive, and this man in his mind he, he obeyed a king and did an act of mercy in David's in David's personal hurt and his personal pain over the death of Saul and the loss of, of Jonathan, his his brother and his friend, and in the and in the devastation to the nation that he loves by losing this huge battle, David responds, why didn't, why did you kill the king? And then, the, and then David calls for his men and he, and he says, uh, you need to, you know, kill him. And they did. They stabbed him right there. And, and David blamed it on him. He goes, the blood of, you know, your blood is on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. He's like, this is your fault. This isn't my fault. You killed the king. Whoever kills the king deserves to die. And and this, I think, just came from a, a deep place of hurt and, and pain that, that David was feeling at this point. And he commanded the death of somebody, and, and the men obeyed. But, you know, they, <laughs> there's no justification for it. There just isn't. But it happened. And the Bible doesn't try to hide that that David did these sort of things that he made these these personal rash decisions it doesn't mean that God's God left him and said well you know you're i'm out like you made a bad you didn't you didn't consult me on this i'm out of here good luck with that no now David David uh, you know i think rolls from that right back into right back into that place of mourning and of memory he doesn't he doesn't look at this uh as as God removing uh, Saul so that David could move into the throne room. He doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see uh he never saw Saul as a man who was preventing God's plan from going forward. So when Saul dies, he doesn't see it as God finally opening the gate for for David to become king. He's he he mourns this because of the way that he sees it. David understood that that Saul was called of God and therefore could have always been God's man. Because he knows what it feels like to be called of God and he knows that he needs to be connected to God all the time or he starts to lose direction. So he he just understands all of that. He understands the weight of it. Very few people do. And that's another thing that I think David probably understood. There's not a lot of people to that understand the weight of what Saul was going through, and and, and I do, and so there was a depth to his mourning that that uh, few could few could uh, connect with. Now this is what something David. These are some things David didn't do that would have been culturally uh, acceptable. That would have been actually completely culturally uh, expected. You've been anointed the next king. The current king dies. Then, then your like your role is to move in. Your role is in essence to escalate the violence, to take over the the land, to show everyone that you are a strong leader, that you are ready to take the nation, that you know you know you know who you are. And that they better not come up against you, because there are whenever the the a king died, there was lots of people who would look for that as an advantage. We see that later in uh in the book of uh, Isaiah, right, where he starts out uh, in the year that you know in the in the year the king Uzziah died. What what is that? Why would why would you start a chapter like that? You start it because he's saying, in this year where there was great turmoil, where there was uncertainty. No one knew what was going on. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. He brought him to this place where God, uh, you know, God brought him to this place to say, listen, you're in turmoil. I'm on the throne. Everything's going to be fine. Um, My my plans are not thwarted by a king who dies. And David understood that as well. David knows that Saul has died. He does not look at it like this is God, you know, moving me forward. This is the way that I get to the, the throne. I get there. Because God kills, you know, takes out the king, he, you know, giving God credit for another death, which, of course, was not God's plan. It wasn't, you know, God's plan is never death. His, his plan is always life. His plan is to resurrect life. His plan is to heal life. It's not to take life. So, uh, David, I think David understood that even though he had just commanded someone to die, which I do believe was outside the the way that God would have wanted him to do it, but God didn't lift his goodness. David David stayed there. David didn't escalate the violence. I'm sure there were men in the village that were expecting uh, David to call them to arms, for them to mount up again, to to leave the city, to head into the capital of Jerusalem or not? It wasn't Jerusalem, capital of Israel at that time. To to you know set up camp in the palace to start making uh, political and military uh, strikes, to see who was loyal to them in the army. David would have had a lot of friends in the army, a lot of people who would have looked at this at this battle that they just lost and been like, man, if David was here, we would have won this. And, and now that they've all fled, I'm sure a lot of those that fled are looking to David to call forth his you know his military and they would have volunteered to to fight for him but david did not escalate the violence he did not turn this into uh, a bloodbath a civil war he said the men yeah the men who who had wanted to kill david or wanted to, david to kill saul sorry the men who wanted to, david to kill saul were now lamenting along with david and, uh and David wrote a song he wrote a song and he ordered that the people of Judah in other words his 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 tribe he's like I I want you to know this because you see Judah had had been excluded right Judah was was a, a southern tribe Benjamin was a northern tribe Saul always thought that Judah had loyalty to David and not to him he they tr- he treated him as a second class tribe there were people in Judah that that were desperate for Saul to die not all of them but but many and David wants to teach this this tribe uh, a lament he he teaches them the song so that they would know that he is not going to call them forth to civil war he is not going to escalate the violence he wants them to remember who Saul was and he says a gazelle lies slain on your heights Israel how the mighty have fallen. I mean, that's amazing. What a way to start. I mean, I've heard that phrase, you know, "How the mighty have fallen," and and it's a it's a, a poetic call to day to Saul's heart, to to the depth of his of his true identity in God. And he continues to speak about. Uh, yeah, he just continues. I, I guess I could read the whole thing, I guess. Here we go, right? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of, of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. He's basically, uh, you know, in that phrasing, he's saying, let's not proclaim this around the world. I mean, I know they're going to know. But let's not let's not make a a news headline out of this. And he, and he, uh, he continues to, you know, he just, I, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. He, he ends it with this. He says, "How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain in on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished." Now that phrasing. More wonderful me, more wonderful than than that of women is one of those things where again a lot of uh, some academics look at that and will say, "See, this was a sexual affair this was an, this was an intimate relationship uh, but I don't think it i I'm not saying that they're evil for thinking that I'm not I just don't I don't see it going there. I think what David is saying that when it came to women culturally, women were available. They, were, they had a role to play. They had to oversee households, oversee servants, oversee activities, and, and produce babies. That's what women were for. They weren't for, for conversation, unfortunately. They weren't for long conversations about, about heart issues they weren't seen as equals by many they were by god but not by not by the culture and and the, the depth of the connection between jonathan and and david was that of of deep intimacy david and jonathan could talk at length about about god and about connecting in heaven and about heaven's perspective and about wisdom and how to overcome problems they could talk in depth about Saul. I mean, Jonathan was his son. Jonathan knew what his father struggled with. David was his was his, you know, right hand man many times and kicked out a few times as well. But that kind of back and forth, that kind of that kind of crazy world that they lived in, they could talk about honestly and openly, and without fear of rejection, without fear of of uh, disappointment, without fear of anger. Uh, causing damage to their relationship, and David, David longed for that sort of thing. There are many people in leadership who who understand that there are close friends are hard to find because of that kind of that kind of intimacy. That that kind of conversation, when you're in leadership, carries a whole different weight. Because if you can't, to to many, to many, and I know this to be true in my life, and not that I've been in high-up leadership positions. I've been in leadership positions, and there's many times that there are those expectations that are put on you, and you know in conversation with those people, as friendly and as nice as they might be, you know that if you share with them certain things, it would really upset them. It would disturb them. And other you know I understand some of you might be listening saying well then you know cut them out of your life. When you're in leadership you can't just cut everyone out of your life because you're there to lead. And there's lots of people around you. If you're a good leader, you have lots of people around you who don't agree with you. Who bring aspects to uh, um not aspects, perspectives to the problems that you're that that you, that you need because you need to know options. You need to know um uh, the way that other people might see things so that you can communicate more clearly like there's there's wisdom in all of that but there's also a lack of intimacy that occurs because you know you can't share everything with everybody they 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 all can't handle uh knowing that you struggle and i i know that this is something that hurts a lot of people in ministry and in leadership a lot of a lot of ceos struggle with this cfo's uh pastors ministers and and uh the way they deal with it sometimes is not you know is not uh helpful sometimes they become their own worst enemy right they become uh, isolated i always think it's worth going for it but you also have to be wise in and how quickly it happens and there's there's a there's a many times where i have uh try you know found somebody Who's good, good person, good guy. Uh, I enjoy talking with them. We get a little closer. We talk a little bit more. We get a little closer. We talk a little bit more. And then there's there's this moment where I might share something, and their response tells me that's as far as we're going. Like we've kind of hit the end. Or uh, you know I make a call out to spend some time with them, and it's they're they're done. And and in essence what what i find out because i ask questions what i find out is that that to be that friendly with quote a pastor to be that friendly with the with the you know the camp director at or whatever is uh, is just uncomfortable because at some level they 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 have they have pictures in their head that if if somebody's that intimate with me if they're sharing that kind of depth with me then they're going to expect me to share that kind of depth with them. And I don't want my pastor knowing those thoughts. I don't want my pastor to know that kind of behavior that I'm going through. I don't, and I don't want to know when he's doing it. I am just uncomfortable with that. And that makes sense to me. It's not, I, it's not wrong. I just know that it takes a, it takes a leader, um, sometimes a lifetime to find a friend that they can talk to, without fear of, of breaking the relationship or, or going, you know, going to a place where the person is done, you know, where the relationship at least ends, not that it breaks, but it's just going to be maintained from that on, you know, from that point on. And that's happened to me, um, you know, in my own personal life, uh, probably three, I probably have three friends and I know that sounds horrible. People are listening, "No, Bob, I'm your friend." I know. I got a lot of friends. I do, but there's not many I can I can really open up to. And that's fine. I don't think we're designed to open up deeply to to uh you know, hundreds of people. Although I know a lot of people try it on Facebook. It gets awkward, doesn't it? Sometimes people share stuff and you stare at it and go like this is Facebook. Like this is like wait, what? Like <laughs> Wow, like that is so out there and revealing and now I don't know what to do. Well, I do. I usually if if it's something I want to interact with, I usually just send them a private message and ask if they want to talk. I like talking. I find it more uh more connecting than than just words on a screen. Uh so uh, where was I? I got I got totally turned around. Oh, we're talking about friends. Yeah. So I'm not, I don't say all that, like, feel sorry for me. I only have three friends, but it's just, it's just a reality. And I think for David to be constantly moving around and running from Saul and, and, you know, years of seven, eight years of, of this kind of activity where he didn't have close friends. He had, he had men who would give them li- their lives for him. He had men that would share stories and and battle and you know uh, sit at dinner tables and have have family gatherings like like he had friends he was surrounded by people who loved him but Jonathan was something different. Jonathan was somebody he could talk to at a level that his mighty warriors wouldn't know that David's mighty men just never got to. Jonathan had a heart for God and a heart in worship that that mirrored and, and was the same as David's. That's why Jonathan was like, when you're king, I want to work with you. I want to be your second in command because I, I know what we can do with this nation. I know what God can do with a man who follows him at the lead. I know this nation will turn and it will be glorious and David lost that. Do you understand? He not only lost his friend, an intimate friend, but he lost somebody who he was going to rule alongside of. That when he did become king, when the Lord did finally open, not open the door because technically the door is open because Saul's dead, but when the, when the pathway to the throne was completed and David actually sat there, then then Jonathan was going to be there. So it was like, not only was was he going to have his best friend with him, but his best friend was going to help him bring forth this vision that they both had for the country, the vision that they both had received from the Lord, a vision that that they both could see happening. Like this was so filled with sorrow for, for David that Jonathan was dead. So when he says, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women, this was not just a, a, a physical connection. This was something that went way beyond that and and very few people would understand it. Very few, because most have no idea what what that level of leadership, the weight of that that you know the, the weight of the words that you use. when you're at that level of leadership i mean any in any leadership position the what you say matters more it's it's bizarre. <laughs> I remember the first time this happened, right i i I was elevated uh, I was young, I was young, but due to uh, circumstances, right? They elevated me to a position of camp director and and i was i i just i kept thinking in my head, you know, nothing's changed. I'm just the same as I was before. But to everyone else, I now had this title. So my words mattered. So I, I unfortunately had developed this, inc- what I considered a, an incredibly funny r- line of humor where I would exaggerate um, something that I thought was ridiculous. I would exaggerate something into what I would consider something funny because it was so ridiculously untrue, it was funny. But I would say that about people because, again, I thought, man, this is hilarious. I just called this person, you know, an alcoholic, but I know that they never touch alcohol. Ha 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 (laughs) ha. That's just a sad, simple example. But I caused a lot of hurt because now I was a director and I would say things like I'd say to somebody who I knew was a hard worker, I would say, come on. You're just being lazy. And that would hurt them. Of course it would. Because I wasn't encouraging them, I wasn't complimenting them, I wasn't I wasn't telling them something that was true. I was telling them something that wasn't true. But because I had the word director behind me, it mattered more. But of course, I was the director and they couldn't tell me that. So I spent, you know, like a summer just basically destroying destroying my staff. And I had no idea. No idea I was doing it. So so when I, you know, I, when I found out I was crushed. Like I felt horrible. And I tried to justify it. <clears throat> I didn't always approach it correctly. I tried to, I apologize, but then I also tried to explain what was happening, you know, um, and it and it brought me to a, a verse of Proverbs that says, Like a like a madman with weapons of warfare is somebody who causes pain and says I am joking. Now, I know that's not an exact quote, so I hope you can find it, but but I knew what it meant. I think I think the exact quote is like as a madman with firebrands and arrows, but but it's that idea that that I was hurting people and then I was trying to say, ah, I was only joking. Well, it it doesn't it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way, and it took me years. And periodically, it still pops up. I'll say things, I'll say things that are hurtful because, but I think they're funny, and people are hurt by them. And I have, I do apologize. I, I don't want to do it anymore. I've, I've really tried to train my brain, even if it thinks it not to say it, because it's, it's hurtful. Anyways, so back to the weight of the decisions and words that were used, like, like. David, David understood this. Jonathan understood this. Uh, Saul understood this. And to have somebody next to you that understands the weight of the words that you use and can lend you not only an ear and a heart to discuss things with without fear of saying it, like sometimes you want to discuss things intensely. You want, to, you want to accuse people of things that maybe aren't true, but you need to say it out loud. And Jonathan wouldn't hold those things against David, and David wouldn't hold those things against Jonathan. There was a there was a processing that occurred. There was freedom to process out loud. There was freedom to say things out loud, and they there was going to be no damage to the relationship. There was going to be no offense. There was going to be no you know no there was nothing but freedom between the two of them. And he lost that. When Jonathan died, he lost that second. He lost that powerful uh, friendship and connection that was going to stand next to him when he finally got to the throne, whenever that was. So it's a sad day. And it's a day of great honor to the nation, to Saul, from David, and all the men of Ziglag. It's... it's a uh, it was a it was a tough day, and uh, I know I know it's a terrible place to land. Right? What a horrible way to end a end a podcast. This is a terrible day, a terrible day for the nation of Israel. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's it's the way the chapter ends too. So I think it just makes sense. We'll just end it here, and uh, we'll talk next week. Next week. Oh, you want to talk about political intrigue? Man, things get crazy, because David moves in. To the nation uh, of Judah, you know, to to the nation of Israel, and and so does uh, there's a few other political people who are also trying to uh, take over the nation. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's not a clean cut path. It's not a clean cut path. Oh, but we'll talk about that next week. Hey everyone